Um, and I see crypto tools already providing sort of the sovereign stack where like I don't see us as like individuals just living in the mountains, but I see the sovereign stack that allows you to kind of collaborate with your fellow, you know, humans in like a really positive way and not the sort of communist yeah. way. Hell yeah. All right. What's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work. I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Phil, thanks for joining me today. Yeah. I was uh, very intrigued by the talk you gave last night at the Urbit meetup here in Austin. You were talking about network states versus network age is what you like mm. to call the, yeah, exactly. this current moment. I thought that's as good a place to start as any. What is the difference between this idea of the network state, which a lot of people probably have heard of, and your kind of larger vision for the network age? What is the network age? Yeah, so I'd say like the network state is, of course, like Balaji's book that he just came out with. And it kind of like follows a long track of um, other works that came out, like Sovereign Individual, a lot of Curtis's writing. So Curtis Yarvin's writing, like Patchwork especially, really hits on that theme. And so I think it like kind of, it slots into kind of an existing set of literature on just kind of like, what's the next step for humanity? What's the next, how are we going to be organizing? What are going to be our tools? What are going to be the themes of these next ages? It's just funny he like calls it this, you know, network state. Because mm. like states, you know, if you read Sovereign Individual and you buy their thesis, which I think um, actually like a ton of us have read Sovereign Individual. And most people are just like, yeah, it was pretty much right. Like it called Bitcoin. <laughs> Uh, in 1997, so it's just very early. And I think like what that did such a good job of is like laying out the kind of general characteristics and themes of an entire age. So what was like hunter-gatherer, what was agricultural, medieval, um, industrial, late industrial. And yeah, I just see this as like all the necessary components of entering a new age are there. But to me, like, and a lot of the other writers, it's like patchwork's all about the decline of the state. Sovereign individual is all about the decline of the welfare state. So why would you write a book in 2022 about calling it network state and put so much emphasis on that when state was something that, you know, kind of emerged in the industrial period where states became powerful, especially under, you know, Napoleon. And so for me, like, we're clearly entering a new age. Um, we can kind of go into the logic of that new age. And I think, honestly, like, a s states will be an increasingly minor part of our existence. Mm. And so that's like my main issue with sort of Balaji's take. Um, I agree with Sovereign Individual and with Curtis that like we're definitely entering a new period. Why I kind of like the term network age is um, it's actually quite hard to describe this new age like very succinctly. Usually ages are named um, long afterwards, yeah. like the industrial age. People weren't saying that in 1700. Um, they like said that in like 1900. And so it's kind of, it's somewhat interesting for us to be even naming this age so early. But the themes I see are kind of like, networks are critical. It's almost like somewhat tribal. Like, uh, so you have sovereign individual that puts that emphasis on individual and you have network state that puts the emphasis on the state. But what we're actually seeing is more like organic, somewhat more tribal organization of groups like Milady. That's, <laughs> that formed a tribe organically. Yeah. Uh, Praxis is forming a tribe organically. 
a lot of urban expatting that Aleph is helping to organize is happening sort of organically in this more like tribal situation where the tribes are also both networked across tribes and tribes like yeah people think of it as like tribalism oh, that's terrible but like tribes are like a very old form of human organization and they're actually fairly scalable like they're nicely fractal and they also build up like the way the native Rhodesian tribes worked was you know one chief was very local and then he reported up to the chief of chiefs who reported up and there was like four layers of chiefs so you could actually get up to represent at a national level through this tribal situation and so we see sort of like that type of unit um, it's also happening internationally where you can be connected now and be working across borders without any issues whatsoever. So some of the background here for people listening is that you're basically right now kind of romping around the world with this crew of Urbit hackers. Basically, you've exactly. been, you are all working on Urbit in Ukraine and then the war kicked off and you went to places like Mexico and El Salvador. You all have been all around. And so you're kind of doing this international nomadic thing, except not as isolated individuals. You're working on a much larger project, Urbit, you have these kind of shared goals and you do kind of move as a tribe. Yep. So that's some of the practical background, I guess, for people watching or listening, that, that's where you're coming from. And maybe also just for the audience, let, take us back a little bit, you know, uh, maybe like, who are you? What brought you to this stage? I think you were kind of like a Harvard finance kind of guy. What was, yeah. what was your background before you became like a roaming crypto cowboy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um... Let's see, for me, I was working, yeah, Harvard class of 2013, um, went into consulting after that, pretty like sort of econometric, stats heavy, mostly consulting for pharma companies. And then I worked in healthcare IT um, in a megacorp for about 10 months and then had this opportunity to jump ship, work at um, this healthcare startup that was kind of trying to do sort of like a patient-driven revolution in healthcare. Um, so they had like, there were all these new APIs coming out in healthcare. It's this really exciting time where like suddenly you could get access to cost data and to patient level data across any organization. So it was a cool time just to, like tap into those APIs, start trying to come, trying to execute this new vision for US healthcare. Um, unfortunately, and it was like, it had done it with a crypto raise, although it did it at the very beginning of 2018. And so, <laughs> right like, at the top. Right at the top, basically. <laughs> and I remember my, like, you know, my introduction to crypto was I'd bought some ETH in 2017. I'd liked it. I was like, oh, ETH's going to change the world. And then yeah. I was like, you know, Bitcoin, I had that classic thing where I'm like, oh, Bitcoin's like the legacy coin that's like going to go under. So I shouldn't buy that one. I should buy the new one. Um, so quite naive in that way. And I think part of that was also just seeing the top in 2018 because I went to Bitcoin Miami 2018. It was insane. Everyone was just like doing coke and there was like strippers at all the parties. And I was just like, uh, this doesn't seem like a legit <laughs> project. Uh, so that was my experience. And then, you know, we raise a couple million and then it basically all the crypto markets tank. We were sort of stupidly left in crypto, I'd say, for startups, you know, raising crypto, but like really you want to be uncorrelated to the market because that's when it's going to be hard to raise. So like you should probably mostly have fiat if you're a startup. And then like, you know, as a as a personal person, as an individual, I now invest in crypto. But as a startup, you kind of want your treasury in something that isn't going to be correlated with like the market. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I did that for almost two years, and then it was kind of a weird time because like uh, crypto had gone down. The founder who I joined signed up with, really great guy, Andy, he kind of just like ghosted on the project. Um, and then I was uh, sort of like de facto CEO, but with no product market fit, uh, trying to find how to make money off of these APIs that were opening up. Um, yeah, so I did that and then ended up having to wind down that company 
and it was just sort of like watching to see sort of the crypto themes play out because I thought I just sort of in, instinctively thought there was something there, but I couldn't quite see it until COVID. When COVID, you know, in my free time uh, working, I'd gone back to kind of MegaCorp Healthcare IT um, as like a sort of data science analytics manager and. In 2020, I'd been running these Airbnbs in my spare time that I'd bought. And then, like, you know, COVID comes, everyone cancels. And this sort of value-based investing thing that I had sort of confidence in that would get me to an early retirement, um, I had to question that thesis. And I had to dive into it. And, like, I had studied a lot of econ um, as an undergrad. I always kind of liked Austrian economics. It was just it seemed true. Uh, <laughs> and then I did, like, a massive, like, deep dive uh, through actually Saifedean. So I'd read Bitcoin Standard in 2020. Yeah. I was like, this book's awesome. It was actually, my brother had recommended it to me because he was sort of orange pilling me at the time and like helping me find the correct things to read. And so I got very orange pilled, went down this sort of Austrian economics hole and was basically like, oh, the dollar is actually like just deteriorating as a unit of account and it's sort of like a money. And like, oh, Bitcoin's probably the next thing. So I became sort of a raging Bitcoin maxi, sold my houses. Um, and I was just, I was already living abroad at that point because of being able to work remotely. Um, because of COVID. So I was already working out of Mexico City. And then I got introduced into Urbit on my second trip to Mexico City. I loved my first trip so much that I was like immediately planned a return trip a few months later and invited like my entire family. I'm from a huge family. Um, Tim Luck runs the company Ukbar. Um, and so I I kind of like pitched Mexico City to him. I don't think he had been or maybe, maybe he had been briefly because he used to travel a lot. And um, so he visited from Ukraine and brought <laughs> a few Urbit guys, Sarpin and Tondas, um, to Mexico City. And I started like being like, okay, what's next after Bitcoin? Like, okay, Bitcoin wins as money. Right. But then like what replaces this kind of computing experience I hate where it's kind of like uh, <laughs> I have to like patch a ton of apps together. Mm -hmm. I don't have a unified experience. It's not like customizable and like <laughs> and, be, and just like becoming getting control of it, like if you want to have your own server, uh, you just have to become like a Linux admin, that sucks. <laughs> and so it's really boring. And so then I was like getting pitched a lot in person in Mexico City on Urbit. And then I like listened to Urbit from the inside out with um, with Ted Blackman. Um, he's now you know a very close friend of mine. I know he was on the other life podcast as well. Yeah, like yeah. three years ago or something. Yeah, twice actually. Yeah, yeah I watched yeah. that one actually. Once yeah, a long actually, time really, ago. Yeah, that's Once actually a long the time first, ago, yeah, yeah. YouTube, and it's like Ted's in like some outside setting. Like your production value is way higher now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've come a long way. I'd like to think so. Yeah, I forgot about that one actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I actually watched that one, and then I listened to Urbit from the inside out. And I was like running in like the mountains of Mexico, listening to like the soothing sound of Ted Blackman's voice. And I was like, oh, this Urbit thing looks like, sounds awesome. It's not just, it, it sounds like exactly what we need, the sort of sound computing. It's computing you own. Um, and importantly, sort of over time, I realized like the big thing missing in Web2 is sort of owning the social graph. So like you have, like currently I have 200 logins across the internet. Right. So each person has me as like a line in their database. And that's like fine in like a WeChat type world where like if you're fine with WeChat, but uh, where they can basically integrate all the main services you want into one app. Um, so that kind of works for WeChat in China. It never took off in the US. I think Tim's take in Web Zero, his podcast web about the issues with Web 2 are accurate, where it's more a regulatory thing where Facebook did want to launch their own currency. And so, yeah, I got basically very into Urbit as sound computing and kind of this whole thesis of we need sound computing in order to make this 
future age, this network age, a positive age. And it kind of goes back to the sort of almost like the sovereign individual talked about it. The foreword of that was written by Peter Thiel, the edition I read, where he talks about sort of this AI future versus the crypto future. And they're sort of the, the good, you know, AI bad, crypto good. Right. And, you know, I like, you know, it's somewhat oversimplified, but I kind of agree with that overall thesis where it's like, I do not want to live in communist China. That's like not the future I envision. Um, and I see crypto, I mean, kind of go into it, but I see crypto tools already providing sort of the sovereign stack where like I don't see us as like individuals just living in the mountains, but I see the sovereign stack that allows you to kind of collaborate with your fellow, you know, humans in like a really positive way and not the sort of communist yeah. way. Hell yeah. Know? Okay. So let, let's talk about this full stack because you are working on a company called Alif, which yeah. is basically trying to really make the most of this network age, right? You're, as you're kind of roaming the world with your urban hacker buddies, uh, building cool shit, hanging out, traveling the world, you are seeing ways in which this is going to generalize, right? This is, you, exactly. and you're kind of extrapolating into the future. What, what, what is your thesis about that future? How does this manifest into buying and sharing land, buy, you know, buying and sharing resources of different kinds? And, and how does that integrate with computing? Like paint the whole picture of what is the thesis of Alif for building out this network age? Yeah. And it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. So I'll, I'll try to do the best I can on it. It's basically, we saw this diaspora from Silicon Valley. So previously, a lot of the energy and tech was just concentrated in Silicon Valley. And even the next best one, like Boston had had a dot-com boom as well. Um, I'm from Boston. Originally, my dad had worked as general counsel at a few big internet companies. He actually had the largest IPO. Um, it was 2001, so the very end of that bubble, which is probably why it was the largest IPO until Facebook. So he was IPO manager for that. Company, so I sort of saw the dot-com bubble firsthand, and when it burst, uh, it was really just Silicon Valley um, kind of survived that bubble bursting, and it, it just kept growing. Like Silicon Valley became more of a thing, and I kept watching it. My ex-wife had gone to Berkeley, so I'd go to you know out to the Bay Area both personally, but also for work a fair amount. Mm -hmm. And um, Silicon Valley had all that energy, and it wasn't until COVID where that energy has really dispersed. And kind of the overall thesis is like developer talent is more important than oil today. So oil's more or less dictated the 20th century. We had the petrodollar. Developer talent is sort of the new resource of the future. This is what like actually matters. Developer talent and what you do, which is just sort of helping people distill all this information that's out there and telling them like, hey, what information actually matters? Because like there is information, you know, some people call it information age. And that was a good term, I think, for the last 20 years where it's like it was over, it was kind of overwhelming. It's like I could find this on Google, but it's too hard to find it. And so there's a lot of, it's sort of these two pairings between people who can distill information and people who can create software. It's this general thesis of software is eating the world. Um, but interestingly, the people who are making that software have now spread out and they spread out abroad. There's a ton of them. And I can kind of talk about sort of the hubs for that. It's like Lisbon, Mexico City, Costa Rica, for a lot of the developer expat hubs, Mayin as well. Um, but they've also spread out across the U.S. What Aleph's helping to do is connect that with a digital backend, so that you're basically think of it as membership in um, basically the block masons, the people building this kind of networked age. Block masons, nice. Yeah, it's actually was the name of Tim's uh, ICO in 2017. So I like, but I like that term. It's you're building. And this so you future. want Aleph to be that block masons. 
Yeah, essentially the the membership club for Block Masons. But um, it also involves a, a kind of live-in experience, right? It's like a network of hotels almost, like high-end hotels you're thinking about it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what we've realized from just like living this lifestyle is that a lot of the, um, that like, yeah, you could rent Airbnbs together, but at a certain point, like we're right now in Austin and there's this really cool assembly capital hub here. So like, it, it's just a hangout spot. You kind of want these hubs that help kind of con sort of concentrate that energy um, because a big issue now is that it has spread out and and what we saw with like for example the Talon offsite so Talon you know the original company on Urbit um, they did their offsite in Mexico City when I was there this winter and there was just so much energy from gathering in person like people like there's so much happening in a like the velocity of ideas accelerates and there's sort of a need for that coordination level because developers, as sort of Google and Silicon Valley knew, they're not great at kind of building, they don't want, they want to focus on coding a lot of the time and they want the kind of the other aspects sort of done as a service for them. Right. That's why you see like food at Google's headquarters. That's why like, you know, sometimes they look like almost like amusement parks. Right. So you want to basically build this amazing live-in experience where everything other than coding and hanging out with the boys is taken care of for exactly basically. exactly and so that yeah they can really be more productive it's sort of like it's honestly what silicon valley had kind of like largely done um it's just the fact like for many reasons silicon valley has kind of collapsed and so you kind of create more um kind of a little bit smaller more granular levels with also more flexibility because you're just working from your laptop anyway so instead of just like having to be at google's headquarters all the time it's just like, okay, you could work from like any cafe around, but you still have that sort of almost like clubhouse to connect. Um, and that's huge for, I've seen so much, I mean like smart contracts on on uh, Urbit, the Ukbar work, I just saw that like coming together due to two people hanging out in the same apartment in Mexico City. And so like we kind of lost that when we went remote and now we're kind of starting to stitch that back together. Um, but with, you know, with some, I'd say a lot of innovations on top of what Silicon Valley had done. One, I know that one of the inspirations for Aleph is the business, uh, Celia, is it? Uh, Selena. Selena, yeah. I keep saying Selena. it wrong. You're right. So this is uh, a kind of role model business for you in a, in a sense. I never heard of it until you mentioned it in the presentation. So maybe just explain what is that business, uh, describe the business model, and then maybe we can work from there. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So like, you know, as I mentioned, I'd run Airbnbs um, in my free time. So I had uh, three Airbnbs going in Boston. Um, and so I was always really interested in this kind of sharing economy. It was like really fascinating to me. Um, but I was slowly like didn't love Airbnb over time. And Selena, looking at what they did, they basically recognized the issues in like uh, there's sort of this bridge between WeWorks and um and hotels mm. where it's like actually what people want is way more they wanted more of the silicon valley thing they wanted a more like full set of services where it's somewhat curated so they know they're hanging out with like better than just a hostel crowd right um, they also want it cleaner than a hostel so they basically did a high-end hostel in terms of living but with a lot more investment into the co-working spaces mm. um and so they're big right they're big. They're at a billion valuation. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and they have a they open a new location every week, and their locations are basically, it's a mix between like a hotel, uh, basically a hotel, uh, sorry, a hostel and a WeWork. That's right. what they've mixed. And so, what? How would Alef be different? Like, in the, do you see it as basically just kind of replicating the same model and and taking some of that market share, or like where does things like crypto 
enter in and cause an innovation relative to that model? Yeah, great question. So, you know, they're a great cash flow positive business, but what they're missing is like the curation of the network. So the crazy thing about Urbit is just how well people get along. And it's similar with like actually with ETH. Uh, like we've had a lot of a lot of the top sort of adjacent people um, to Urbit are ETH developers. And they've have they've like ETH has innovated really far in terms of doing kind of better community events um, like the ETH meetups in like Paris that just happened. The ETH conferences are very social. They're way better in many ways than actually the Bitcoin conferences. I could go into what I saw about sort of Bitcoin versus ETH. It's a hot topic. But like the main thing with LF is basically realizing that like it's not just about providing the physical thing. It's also about with digital assets, with tools of crypto, like you can actually monetize that network. Like a lot of the values of SF wasn't just the scenery. There's a lot of beautiful scenery. It was the fact you had gotten a network effect of all those amazing minds in SF, the mix between the entrepreneurs, the developers, and the capital. Those are like three core things. The fourth thing that's actually critical in this age is also more cultural, actually. It's more related to like what we did with the Mars Review Party or with Urbit Week. It's like really bringing in um, the influencers from across the space. That's what Milady did so well, like Milady raves, Praxis parties. Um, it's bringing this fourth group that's really interesting because we're not just trying to, we're not just trying to like replace everything with software. We're also trying to improve the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. You know, like the 20th century was pathetic aesthetically. Like the last good thing was like Art Deco in like 1920, uh, which I love, and that's why everyone's moving to Mexico City. Um, but like, I think we really need a renaissance across art here. And so LF's innovation is basically more curation of the network. So you're not just like when I go to a Selena, it's a beautiful space, but <clears throat> the chance of me actually making a friend is low compared to like an Urbit meetup. I see. And so the KPIs are more like, did you meet your business partner through this like hangout here? Uh, did you get capital invested from hangout here? How many like close, close friends did you make? And like even like how many girlfriends uh, <laughs> did you get? Like, did you find your girlfriend through this? Right. Um, interestingly, that's actually one of the biggest problems for like, the entire dev space. Right, right. Of course. Well, probably want to reframe that to, did you meet your wife there? Right. You know, oh, yeah. if you're optimizing for I girlfriends, mean, like yeah. number of girlfriends, that's not going to end well. No, you end up in like <laughs> Mayin or like sex padding and like this like kind of depressing yeah, phase. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. Did you meet your wife through there is like a core KPI that I want to hit on yeah. Aleph. And like, I loved that about the Praxis interview you did. Um, with Dryden, like he talked about those KPIs and like th those are critical. Like what right. are your KPIs? So something that you and I talked about last night was something we agree about is that we tend to think you and I, that as the network state or the network culture, the network age grows, whatever you want to call it at a certain threshold, it's not going to be integrated with the system of states like Balaji seems to think, you know, in his book, one of the key kind of criteria for a successful network state, according to his perspective, is that it, uh, it would be recognized diplomatically yeah. by other governments. When I read that, I was kind of like, well, that's quite beside the point. I was like, once there's a successful network state, it's going to be zooming past all currently existing governments. Yeah. They're not even, it might, it might not even that be. That sentence really bothered It me, might not yeah. even be legible to, to governments, right? Especially if it's shrouded behind like zero knowledge tech, right? It's like yep. whatever this network state is, when it really takes off, it's going to be so much crazier and bigger and weirder in, in ways we can't really foresee that probably currently existing governments 
are going to be left in the dust is, is the way that I would yeah, think about totally it. And you tend to agree. So talk more about that and talk more about how, you know, what kinds of wagers are you making when it comes to building out your project? What do you expect? How do you expect that to manifest in, in interesting ways that maybe other people haven't thought about? Yeah. So I, I totally agree. I think that was like, and like, that's not like a small thing about Blasi. Like when you say that all of the discussions now that we have on like Telegram and Urbit groups about the network state, they always are like, Oh, but you're not trying to be recognized as a country, so you're not really a network state. And it's like, okay, then seems like a weird goal. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, like, it's like what... a goal. To like, and so my question would be like, why do you even want to be recognized by a state? Right, you want sovereignty, right? You you want freedom, power, whatever you want yeah, to call like, it. You want to leave the state behind. You want to escape. You want to escape its clutches. Yeah. That like we could list out. Like people want to get married. People want to have friends. People want to be able to. Um, start companies. People want to be able to work for companies that treat them people want well. to be able to do whatever they want, get rich, don't have to pay taxes, travel the world, yeah, but so also, <laughs> but also like have a stable, happy, wholesome family as well. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's like more or less like the lifestyle we already sort of achieve, um, and so we're just trying to scale that as a service. Um, and so, yeah, I would say like why the state? Like that really the the question should be like you know sovereign individual already laid out why the state's losing power. So like the question for Balaji would be like, why do you see diplomatic um, recognition is important? Why would we even want that? And like something that came up in discussions on Urbit around that topic was like, what do we actually want? One is like, well, we don't want to be like fucked with by a state, right? Mm-hmm. Like we want right. to we want to like have like security. Um, interestingly, a lot of countries are already competing for developer talent. Like Portugal's made a huge play here. Everyone's launching digital nomad visas. Like, guess what they're trying to target? It's you as a software developer, um, or it's you as like someone with a good platform who has a high enough income to not like be a burden to their economy. Um, so, like, I think we're up to thirty countries with digital nomad visas, and that's like accelerating very quickly. Um, so we see the trend there, and like, so we don't want to be messed with. So we do need states that treat us well. Um, but if the state doesn't treat us well, this is an interesting thought experiment, like, you know, Ukraine got invaded, right? And so what happened there, like my brother was living in Kyiv. I had already left to go to Mexico because it's cold in Kyiv in the winter. So I'd left for the timing worked great. I was, uh, so I didn't get stuck in the subway like Sarpin did for five days. Oh no. Uh, yeah, that was funny. Just, well, not funny, but I think it really matured to matured him in a great way. Actually. Like I, I saw Sarpin just as the war Stuck in the subway? Oh, yeah. Wow. I like bomb sheltering in Kiev subway for five days wow, before he was intense. able to get a train out. And the train out, because the first train out in five days. I got to get him on the podcast in Miami. I'll see about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sarpin, I mean, he's really, like, he's, he's a funny. war hero yeah, now. He's, he's, he's funny. <laughs> uh, Sarpin was, like, the second orbiter I really met. Yeah. And it's, like, such a weird second one to get because he's <laughs> just, like, an awesome orbiter, but also, yeah. like, uh, he orbit pills really effectively. Uh, a lot of people, he doesn't quite, yeah. He's not quite the person to orbit pill me. Like, Ted did a better job of that. <laughs> okay. But he orbit pills so many. And so, like, what happened there with Ukraine, right? So, in in the old days, if you have to flee, like, your business is just, like, fucked. Like, it's gone. Uh, now with the internet, and especially with crypto, it's like, look, we have the store of value in Bitcoin. So my brother just, like, literally drove across the border with his family. It took 12 hours. You know, it's somewhat stressful. But, like, he gets across the border. He has all his money. He's set up in Italy, Ukbar's business, you know, he's CEO of Ukbar. It doesn't, it wasn't affected. And so that's so different. And it's, it's like, what, what happened there? What are these tools? And it's like, well, one is all of your value, all of like the value is accruing digitally. So like what actually matters is just like his network of contractors around the world who work for Ukbar. And then him personally, like, you know, he has one apartment in Kiev, but that's a tiny fraction of the net worth. 
everything else is mobile. So you drive across, it's in your brain and you're across the border. So that's, it's just like being mobile now is easy. There's not this like, you're not like the poor refugee, like waiting to be like let in. Um, and so like the Ukrainian crypto networks, for example, they all were able to pay the bribes to get across and get into Lisbon. Um, so we just see like a completely different logic here and sovereign individual kind of laid out this logic well. I think maybe it's worth talking just a little bit about like crypto tools okay. um, because like crypto tools are really poorly understood. And I think like you understand them and a lot of people in urban understand them. But more broadly, I see a lot of confusion. Like people still ask me like, what is Bitcoin good for? Uh, and I'm like, like, well, first off, tokens clearly let you bootstrap um, networks. So being able to bootstrap networks and get to scale is massive. Um, like Bitcoin got to a trillion dollars without VC funding. That is a huge deal. I'm not sure why it's not talked about more because like it's not just Bitcoin that did it. Milady's doing it. Like you could literally do this at like the individual creator level. And we talked a little bit about that before we started recording, like doing ERC20 tokens as even an individual. I was like chatting with this girl in London who was releasing an album soon. And like we went like deep into crypto. It was funny because she's just like a Christian worship singer. But um, she funny. got like really crypto pilled. And I was getting excited because like suddenly that insight like clicked for me. Like right. why DAOs? Right. So the equity distribution aspect basically is a very legitimate use case. Yep. So, for example, like Facebook wanted to issue equity to everyone. Uh, SEC moved to outlaw that. And even if the SEC hadn't moved to cap the number of shareholders that they could issue equity to, it still was going to be logistically hard because you deal equity is tied to each jurisdiction. It's sort of like uh, fiat money. It's tied to each jurisdiction. So each jurisdiction is issuing it. Each country is issuing their own securities laws around equity. And so if you want to issue as, as a multinational corporation like Airbnb, if you want to issue equity to all your hosts like they had planned and announced, uh, you're gonna have to learn securities laws for like 200 countries. That's not fun. Right. That's expensive. It's slow. Uh, what we see with with uh, sound money is like, ah, uh, man, it just gets me into another aspect with sound money. Like, look at Bitcoin. It's like <laughs> whether or not you use it as store value, um, it's working as a means of payment. Like, I'm buying my coffee in El Salvador with Bitcoin. Um, I pay my contractor in Kosovo in Bitcoin because um, it moves at the speed of light. And Jack Mahler's. That's like a whole tangent. I think I'll slight. I'll very quickly sure. go down. It kind of connects actually to the to the frontier as well, okay. which is a really interesting topic. So Jack was basically like all in on this idea of Bitcoin as a payment network. He's the founder of a company called Strike. Is it Strike? Exactly. Yeah, and it just basically allows for Bitcoin payments in like a nice yeah, app, right? Especially like remittances. Okay. So like sort of cross border okay. payment and like why why is that important? It's like. Well, Jesse, you know, the writer for Ukbar, he tried to get his money out of uh, Korea. So he'd been teaching in Korea. He had about 20K in the bank. He was trying to get that to the U.S. Um, and the Korean banks were like, we can't do that. They're, like, it just literally, we, we're not synced in. So, like, we can't get it there. Here's the cash. That's your only <laughs> option. And then he had to, like, travel. <laughs> and he, he mentioned this story. It's really interesting. He had to travel with cash for a while. He ends up getting stopped at like the Kyrgyzstan border because they think he's Edward Snowden because he's like an American traveler with a lot of cash. Oh, that's hilarious. So like when we travel, I don't have to travel with cash. What did Strike do that's so interesting? They did re they did an awesome remittance app. Um, that's another like core tool. I would say like something that strikes me so much about Strike is like how it connects to the frontier and it kind of 
draws a strong contrast with a lot of other crypto companies I see. And so with Strike, um, you know, how, like, do you know the story of how, like, I was just in El Salvador, I'm going to be living there uh, on and off as I get kind of the hub going in El Salvador. But, like, do you know why the El Salvadorian government legalized Bitcoin? It's kind of a bit fascinating, or, like, how it organically happened. Please tell it. Okay, so it's it's kind of interesting. It's, like, basically there was this guy, Mike, I forget his last name, but he was a surfer from San Diego with a family of three, evangelical Christian, sort of a missionary type, um, you know, a real Christian, basically. <laughs> and he went down, he moved his entire family to El Zonte, which is now called Bitcoin Beach. And he was just hanging out there doing sort of missionary work, doing, like, just like fun stuff like teaching kids in the town how to surf, uh, just like living in the community, being a normal human. Okay. And he was also really into Bitcoin. Like he was an early Bitcoin guy. And then someone, one of his friends visited who was even like much richer than him, visited El Zonte and was like, I love what you're doing here. Uh, can I help scale it? Like I have a lot of money now because Bitcoin's pumping and like because it's, you know, after the 2017 massive run up. Um, and so they give him $100,000 worth of Bitcoin with the condition that he not exchange it into dollars. So he has to pay people in Bitcoin. So he's already doing these sort of community projects. So Mike just like has 100K now and he just like goes out. He's like, all right, I need to like spread this. Who wants it? It's only teenagers who want it. And so like to clean up the El Zonte beach, he gives them <laughs> Bitcoin because they're like, oh, this is cool. Like they kind of get it as like, this is the future right. money. Whereas the old people, when I talk to them in El Salvador, they're like, this is fake internet magic yeah. money. This isn't real. Right. Like it's not physical. Um, that's a separate thing we could go down to, like the physical versus digital. Right. It's so fascinating to me. But on the frontier, this kind of topic of the frontier, um, he then, so he did the 100K uh, and then one of his friends visited and Jack Mahler's was trying to figure out where to launch Strike. So he had the product pretty well built. He wanted to, and he wasn't getting interest in the US that much. Because, frankly, like Americans have bank accounts, whereas El Salvadorians in most of the developing world do not have bank accounts. Only 30% of El Salvadorians have bank accounts. And so <clears throat> Mike and another dude, I think his name's Peter, they're in the McCormick uh, podcast. It's a really good episode on that um, if you need more information. Um, but basically, they invite Jack down to like do like a boots-on-the-ground project. So Jack goes out to the frontier and he starts playing with it, and then he decides, like, this is incredible. He spends a few months in El Salvador, loves the country, and he's like, I'm going to launch my app here and not in the U.S., not mm. some other market. And so he launches Strike in El Salvador, and it becomes, like, one of the most downloaded apps in El Salvador. People love it because it's a slick app. It helps them do remittance payments. It also helps them, you know, have a bank account on their phone. You know, basically what he's doing is using Bitcoin as a payment network in that it settles every 10 minutes, which mm. is unique to Bitcoin. Fiat does not settle. Right. Uh, it takes like six months to settle. Fiat, so it settles in 10 minutes and then you can just basically convert it into stable coins. Um, so you basically don't have like currency holding right. risk. Right. You know, like you're not subject how, to that. How long until you think something like that is built with the Bitcoin wallet on Urbit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're still waiting on the Lightning wallet right. on Urbit. Although Tondas, I think, is going to be taking that over, I heard. I feel like that should come sooner than later, right? Because, I mean, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, Yeah, obviously, I don't think it's actually yeah. that hard. Urbit has had this, like, sort of last, like, we put out grants, but then, like, usually people don't actually get them to, like, all the way there. 
And so I'm more like, that's sort of a side conversation on like Urbit's sort of issues with like its whole apprenticeship grant yeah. model. Well, it's but, easy for um, me to say it's simple, right? <laughs> what the fuck am I going to do? But yeah, uh, but, and, and but I, it actually yeah. is relatively simple. Right. Yeah, with things. It's something I expect, you know, uh, certainly. And on, I was promised Urbit. it yeah. last July. Oh, you were? For okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, Tim promised me it, like, oh, okay, we've got so, this grant going last July. Oh, okay. Well, good to know so, people are, are thinking about it, at least. I'm sure it'll come. Yeah, so uh, Tondis, uh, Jake, um, guy who expats great guy he was a silly dev but he's a huge maxi we got into like a two-hour argument about eth versus bitcoin where we realized we mostly agreed uh but he's he's like all in on bitcoin and wants to do a lot more development because he's worked in DeFi and he wants to bring a lot of that DeFi knowledge from eth into bitcoin so i'm super bullish on on like jake working more on it nice okay Uh, yeah i mean just being able to like just being able to move crypto easily and reliably and securely across orbits in in a way that's like smooth and easy will be a a game it'll be awesome yeah imagine you have like a podcast or a blog and it's just streaming money for people who are not in the loop you know there is already a bitcoin wallet on uh orbit but it just needs some improved improvements. It's not like super um, widely used. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so getting back to this topic of of the frontier. Um, so, w- you know, what other what other kind of lessons are you drawing from these observations? I know that you have done some studying on the frontier. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. A lot of people in the Urbit verse uh, have learned a lot from the Pilgrims, for instance. What what yeah, what did you what did you learn from William Bradford's writings? Yeah, it's funny, like, I grew up in Boston, so, like, I've heard of, like, the Plymouth Plantation, like, they do tours there now, and, like, um, you know, and we always talk about how Boston's a Puritan place, but it's really interesting, uh, Bitmap and um, Lumder, I think is his, Pat P., yeah. uh, you know, Trent. Will and Trent, yeah. um, they were, like, talking about this book in El Salvador, they're like, oh, we're reading it on the flight down to El Salvador, nice. and they're like, this book is awesome, it's called Of Plymouth Foundation, it's uh, William Bradford's diary um, from like 1610 to like uh, I think 1630-ish, so about 20 years, and it covers a really interesting period that I can kind of talk about. But um, the main thing about it, it also includes like letters. He's like, "Hey, don't just like trust my diary." Here's like all of my correspondence with like leaders of the church who are moving people, and like a lot of my insights from it. It was like one of those books that was just like foundational to my understanding of projects. And like one thing was just like. They moved, well, A, they were actually persecuted in England, so they had to move to the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was basically like, why did they leave the Netherlands? It was fine for them now, but they realized they weren't going to have control over kind of like their kids' education and future and the Mm -hmm. culture. So they knew that their kids are basically going to assimilate into the Dutch society instead of their Puritan society. And it's sort of interesting because like a lot of people fled to Austin, right? This is sort of like the Netherlands in some parts of this analogy, but you don't really control the Austin culture. You don't really control how your kids grow up. And so William Bradford realized that, the leaders of the church realized it, and they said, we have to get to the new, we need to go somewhere. They were looking at South America, Virginia, and Boston. And uh, they ended up picking, yeah, south of Boston. Um, And another of like the huge insights is just like, being out on the frontier, it's like heavily marketing. Like they were constantly had a bad reputation, the Puritans did, their plantation did back in London. So they were constantly fighting this disinformation. There was even a spy sent from enemy bankers who wrote, who edited their letters on a boat. So the guy like the spy went out to a boat, edited their letters to make them look bad. And they only had like barely discovered the plot and then re-edited the edit- wow. letters. So Wait, and why did they care about marketing? Because they wanted to attract new people to they come. They needed more settlers yeah. and right. they needed supplies and money. Um, it's like kind of, and that's, 
we can talk a little bit about that. I would say like, um, you know, already the frontier exists and we're kind of at a similar point where like the plantation is there, but it's like, it's not struggling. It's like winning, but it could win faster in terms of like people and resources through like good sort of understanding of what it's trying to achieve. And so he did just a ton of work in terms of making that plantation successful so that there was um, they could attract more capital and people. And from what, what were his main realizations or practices that allowed him to win? Yeah, one of the most interesting, actually, is they started communist. Uh, <laughs> the first year is like literally was shared land and you had to all work it. Right. That um, was very much like the early Christian church. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was shared. It was shared land, very explicitly communist. Right. And then like they almost they lost 50 percent of their community to starvation wow. in the first six months, that first winter. <laughs> And then they had a shitty harvest that with using the plantation, using this communist approach to agriculture in their first uh, season, because they had bad timing. They landed in November. You know, it's very cold by November. You can't plant. So that first harvest was raised on communist methods and they were still hungry. And everyone was like, everyone who visited was like, wait, everyone's still hungry like a year in. And they and then he's like, oh, we moved to like capitalist practices <laughs> where like everyone has their own land and can like work their own plot and make money for working someone else's plot. And he's like, we literally never had hunger issues again. That's like the key phrase is like, oh, wow, communism doesn't work. And so you have to like and I actually kind of think about that when I think about um, these kind of like the praxis model, for example, we can kind of dig into a little but these kind of like broad, like huge projects that are trying to get a ton of money and people to do something at once, it's like somewhat communist. And um, whereas I think the hub and spoke model that we're using with Aleph, it allows you to have the hub just as we have this hub in Austin. But then, you know, the spokes are like, you know, that event space we went to last night. It's like the Commodore restaurant that Will owns. It's like these core spokes that make the hub more useful, but they're independently operated. No one's telling that guy, like, you have to charge this for steak because it's like... So basically the lesson you take from the pilgrims is that to make a new city on the frontier flourish, you have to make it kind of hyper capitalist in the sense of a large number of small projects where incentives are really well defined and uh strong accountability yeah and everyone is working hard for basically personal rewards um that if if you kind of have everyone doing that and it's well defined then as a as a a collective it can grow and it can win but if you try to be too loosey-goosey and happy-go-lucky and you know everyone share and try to help each other kumbaya that's not gonna work yeah and like you know, that's, I'm not, like, I think Praxis has really good messaging on sort of, what is it, like, future heroism. It's, like, a kind of a great term and, like, this yeah. sort of aesthetic of, like, the frontier that they've done a good job expanding upon. And, like, they're clearly intelligent people and I respect they raise money. But, like, this idea of moving 2,000 people, like, waiting to have a billion dollars and moving 2,000 people at once to some other location, like, to me, just, like, seems incredibly sort of, like, kind of, like, that model has been tried and failed many times. Um, I would encourage them to do more of a model, even like what the what Bradford did, which is like you have your community back in Europe, you put a plantation out like a actual settlement so you get real world experience, and then you kind of benefit from the network effect where you're getting supplies, money, and people back from the home base. So, mm. you know, Praxis has a lot of infrastructure in New York. That's great. They have so many members. Um, I would encourage them just to get empirical knowledge of being on the frontier. 
So, right. So say more about, this is great. Say more about this. I mean, so in, especially in the urban context or in the ALIF con context, like what, what do you do concretely? How, how do you, how do you take the William Bradford, uh, you know, intuitions and put them on crypto rails with like, you know, contemporary 21st century economic steroids behind them? Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it's all, I mean, Urbit's huge on that um, because you can basically do, um, you own your social graph and we own the communication. So we don't have to worry about someone like hacking our letters and like switching mm -hmm. what they're saying go, that's going back to London. We control our own communication and we're very networked in to the home country, uh, you know, the USA. Um, and so basically we don't have to rely on third parties. We have our own communication. We're like doing, we have our own control of our money. So we don't have to rely on the bankers that they had to rely on in London to send out the financing. We don't have to operate through third parties. Also it took fucking forever, right? It's oh, like yeah. months Three for months. Like, messages like, to get back uh, and forth. <laughs> yeah, I think it was actually weirdly only like a two week voyage, but then you picture two weeks and then the guy has to wait till he has something to say in the letter. Or that it's right, like, talk, about, talk about latency. Oh yeah, that's like so. That's a minimum latency of a month if he like immediately goes yeah. and comes back. How many, how many transactions per minute does that amount to? <laughs> yeah, it weirdly was sufficient. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, they pulled it off, right? So yeah, so I'd say with Elif, like we just have a really nice backend that we're building, and so regardless of whether we meet someone through, you know, people message me after you'd posted the YouTube, and they're like, "Hey, this sounds cool. Like, how do I get looped in?" So that lets us loop them into the backend. But also when we, you know, also people in person who I meet. They're like, hey, uh, this sounds really cool. Like the guy, there's this guy, Jack, who came to the meetup last night. You know, I met him at a bar in El Salvador and he was just a cool guy. He had been working with El Salvadorian government. And I was just like, this is a good guy. We should like loop him in. And so like we can, because we have our own networks on the back end, we can loop people in on the front end different ways. Um, Twitter, YouTube, it doesn't really matter in person. Right. But I think what you were saying about the, the capitalist aspect and really getting aggressive with uh, incentives and, and rewards and making, yep. making sure that every individual agent in a system can access, you know, a certain amount of, of, of upside, right? Yeah. That, that, that seems to be, that seems to be the, the key idea that you're kind of drawing from the, from the pilgrims, which a lot of people probably wouldn't expect that to necessarily be one of the lessons you take from the pilgrims. Yeah, extremely capitalist. <laughs> yeah. But in this world where we have all of these new tools, you know, um, it does seem like you can really apply that logic uh, in a new in a new and more accelerated way. Yeah. So one part of it is just like, as we talked about the hub and spoke, where like you do need to let people operate fairly independently, mm -hmm. um, especially people as capable as orbiters. You do want them operating independently to the extent possible um, and not managing them too closely on the incentive thing. You know, I think like a you do want a membership token that kind of governs it. Like we see this with the Galactic Senate, <laughs> we see this with Miladies. Um, these kind of like membership tokens are awesome for gating your communities. You think NFTs are the model there? Yeah, I think so far. So like a discrete um, set of individual tokens. Yep. Right. Yeah, I think like it's kind of like we've seen this with galaxies. Um, like it's really good to have kind of like one person own a galaxy. It accrues value as the network. That membership token accrues value as the basically being a member of it goes up and the prestige of being a member. So being, you know, the bull case for galaxies is basically people are going to like want to be connected to the Galactic Senate, maybe for voting reasons, but probably more for status reasons, like how Pax is wearing his galaxy number <laughs> on his jersey at a meetup. It's just cool. Like, you know, yeah. they're short, they're memorable. Sure. Yeah. Um, so membership NFTs are like, Definitely one angle. I also like you think the that model's of, here to stay. That's not a fad. That's definitely that, not a yeah. fad. Okay. Um, we had to. We already did this organically. Like the Freemasons had 
membership rosters, just mm. having an NFT associated with it reduces a lot of the bureaucratic burden. A lot of what crypto is doing is like making things easier. Like uh, with the Airbnb example, if they had done tokens, they wouldn't have to study 200 securities laws and like create equity that's customized to every single jurisdiction they operate out of. Right. They could just break the securities laws of 200 countries in one foul swoop. Yeah, we could talk about the legal <laughs> aspects too. It's a really fascinating, uh, my dad, uh, he worked both in the Reagan Justice Department as like assistant director on oh, policy, but then he also worked as assistant um, general counsel. So as I mentioned, he did tech IPOs and he got into crypto law. And so I've learned just a tremendous amount from like hearing his opinion on crypto law. And he's a lawyer for a lot of the Urbit guys. Um, can't say names, but basically, um, yeah, crypto law is fascinating. There are a lot of strat. It, it's like an area where like basically if you're issuing a token, talk to a lawyer. Yeah, it's like the kind of like you know, too long, didn't read. Um, right. That, but there are strategies to, there are ways lawyers can actually help you in this current environment. Um, there's ways you can structure your businesses where you're actually not breaking anyone's laws. Or another way I think of it is like, okay, whose laws am I breaking? If I'm breaking like the Central African Republic's laws, do I care? Can they mm. get me? Right. The IRS can 100% get you. So I take the IRS very seriously and I respect their authority in the words of Cartman. Um, and so, yeah, so I definitely like think about jurisdictions that like, that, that's actually a good point on like states, right? Like not all states are created equal. Some states are the nuclear powers, right? And they have a lot of power. Like Russia is threatening literally like on their own, like their, their state department is threatening to nuke people if they don't get their way. And like, and if you know nuclear power has ever been invaded, so there's different classes of states. And then there's also like states that can hit you and there are states is, that can't as sort of a sovereign individual. So are there, what are the particular structures you've found are the best practices or what you think will emerge as the best practices when it comes to, you know, for, uh, you know, in my audience, we have a lot of engineers, but also creators, writers, you know, people who are, are trying to be avant-garde when it comes to crypto and really get out in front of all of that kind of stuff from what you know and the experience you've, you know, the experiences you've had around the world, but also maybe within your family, you have a lot yeah. of interesting things going on. Like what looks to, what, what kind of advice do you have or what are the, what are the top practices that uh, people should know about? Yeah, good question. I would say to start off, it's important to think like the SEC thinks. And like the SEC is very clearly both the U.S. Treasury and the SEC are just trying to like make this go slower. Crypto. Just like it's going to happen anyway. They can't stop it, mm -hmm. but they want it to proceed slower. And so how do you do that? You just keep everything ambiguous and then you occasionally do these like insane, insanely strict uh, enforcement actions against some individuals. Like we just saw them hit, uh, the first DAO is getting hit um, by the SEC. It's the Coinbase example where they're hitting them not just on insider trading, which is a criminal felony. Um, they're also hitting them on uh, wire fraud. So that's like wire fraud. Uh, okay. So these are like big things. These are like, these are serious. This is sort of how they hit Ross um, Ulbrich, the head of Silk Road. Like they like got him on like attempted murder somehow, like on basically no evidence and so now he's in jail with no possibility of parole so that's like unfortunate so you have to think they make they like making examples of people they're way beyond what the laws actually say like the actual laws haven't been updated since like the 30s on this um, there have been a couple Supreme Court cases we mostly look at the Howey test right um, I'm not going to do uh, a complete like explainer on the Howey test right now um, 
I did a podcast. We've actually that. talked about it on this podcast oh, a few awesome. times. Yeah, so, so people yeah. might know the because you know I, I'm I mean I'm playing around with a lot of this stuff. I'm I'm definitely yeah. trying to be at the cutting edge. I think I do think that uh, from the creator perspective, whether you're a writer or a YouTuber or a podcaster or whatever, I mean I I do basically believe that crypto is a really important kind of revolutionary yeah. moment for all of this stuff. My position over the past year or two, really, as I it's become more and more a theme on the podcast, is really just that I'm I, I see it as from a research perspective, I th- I'm thinking about it. I'm just watching. I'm 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 playing around with things. But yeah, you're I'm, kind of I'm on going the cutting slow. edge of yeah, applying I'm, a lot of this. Exactly. Well, I'm just going slow and playing around with things, and that's kind of been the the ethics of this podcast. And and for the yeah. people in my audience, is you know we're trying to understand these things um, so we can be out in front of them. Yeah. So kind of an insight into how the SEC thinking is like they want more enforcement discretion with the end goal of like making crypto proceed slower, like slowing the rate of adoption. Um, a lot of the thing with the Howey test, actually, I guess we will go into it, is like this word soul. So like, are you benefiting from the soul action of others? Um, and SEC doesn't like the word soul because it's very constrictive to the SEC. Mm-hmm. And so the you know Supreme Court said it, and the Supreme Court hasn't changed that since the Howey test, which was a long time ago, that SEC versus Howey, I think it was the case. Um, and so they want to expand beyond soul. They want to be able to like enforce broadly across crypto right and but they're beyond what is legally justified and so they have to hit weak projects they have to hit hit weak individuals um so with the ico enforcement actions they hit like the obvious scams first because that helps give them sort of like a a reputation in the press it's like sec won this case won that case it also helps with the courts because you have lower courts saying yep okay you can hit icos you have like jurisdiction over that so now they're doing the exact same thing on dows um so yeah, I would say. Do you, in- do you think NFTs are safer? This is something a lot of people seem to think is that like NFTs seem uh, to be legally safer than the fungible tokens in general. Yeah, I can't comment on it that much. I did come up in my interview of my dad on it, and yeah, it, it was safer. I'm trying to think the exact reason. I think it was related to like it's sort of like selling art. Right. Like art isn't under the purview of the SEC, fortunately. It's more like a collectible, and exactly, it falls. A, it doesn't. It feels yeah. less like a security. It's sort of like with Bitcoin, how it's now regulated as a commodity and not as a security. It changes who gets to regulate it and how. Right. So you've done a lot of research on different countries. You've been roaming around. And for Aleph, you're looking into uh, what are the best places to do things. You're just generally well-informed about this and you've been paying close attention to this. So for people listening or watching who are, you know, like us, you know, super into crypto, have a lot of their net worth in crypto and are trying to stay you know, sophisticated and flexible with respect to all the different global crises we could expect in the next few years. What in your research has shown to be some of the best places that people should be aware of? Like, are there two or three standout places where you, if you had to put your money on it, like this is where the new crypto economy, this is going to be, if this shit hits the fan in the U S this is where you should move with your family. Like, what are you finding? Yeah. So I think one core thing is like, what do I want from the country? Okay. Um, usually what I want is like visas or <laughs> or like the ability to live pretty much indefinitely on a tourist visa if they're not going to give me residency visa. Okay. So I'm a resident of Ukraine and Mexico. Um, I have long-term residency there in both countries. How long is long-term residency? Uh, just three years currently, but with Mexico. But you can like re-up that whenever. Mexico, it re-ups after three years to an automatic green card for life, which is one of the best programs that exists. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Ukraine's, you have to hire yourself again and play along, but it's pretty easy in Ukraine. I see. Okay. Um, of course, Ukraine's one's not that useful to me now. So, like, first off is like, okay, do you want to live there? If you want to live there, you need to be able to live there legally. 
So that means you need, you know, like a digital nomad visa. There's so many of them, as I mentioned earlier, or like you go residency route. If you're rich, you can basically do residency almost anywhere. Um, actually, even if you're not rich, like Portugal has such a good uh, digital nomad visa and that gives you EU wide access uh, for two years for like almost nothing. So like actually most of the most of the countries in the world are open at the visa level. Then we dig into the next one. What do you want? You kind of want like not bad tax treatment. So ideally your foreign income, right? If you're working in like crypto business, ideally it's not taxed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of countries provide that like exemption from taxation if it's foreign sourced income versus domestic. Okay. So you're not working at like, you know, you're not running a local factory that's obviously domestic income. Right. So taxation's big. So you you showed a table last night in your presentation though of mm-hmm. the, a few different countries with the different. Yeah, yeah. So so if you when you rank order them all with some kind yeah, across of weighted, everything, a weighted um, function of all of these things, what in your analysis come shakes out as the best? Lisbon's awesome for like what I call phase one and two, uh, which is like you don't necessarily want to buy the stuff if you just want to like lease and create hubs and you can do a lot off of leasing stuff and you want visas, uh, it has no capital gains, it has a great crypto scene in Lisbon, um, even Porto is a beautiful city. Um, I love, so Portugal is awesome. Mexico is great because of Mexico City, basically, and has awesome beaches. Um, so again, very friendly um, visa laws, very friendly, like the most friendly visa laws, basically. Yeah. Uh, they'll even give you like citizenship and it's a great passport. Um, and then El Salvador, because you can like another big thing, actually, the third thing in addition to like taxation visas is like off ramps from crypto, because as you mentioned, your audience is crypto. Um, my brother was living uh, there was just well, I'll just yeah speak generally the, there were great off ramps in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine, you could convert Bitcoin into cash very easily. So that means like no KYC. Um, not many other places have that. El Salvador has that at low levels. You can do $1,000 a day, no KYC, no fee if you're an El Salvadorian citizen, or you could just get an El Salvadorian to do that trade for you. Mm. Um, so El Salvador has off-ramps. I love El Salvador in terms of this sort of like bigger thing of like getting to build the future you want. It's sort of like an empty frontier where you really get to like work with what's there whereas like it's sort of different from moving to like mexico city or lisbon where it's like sort of a frontier town there's sort of frontier stuff happening i want to ask you about el salvador because you you mentioned it before and i think a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably have heard about oh yeah el salvador is doing a lot of bitcoin stuff but you've been down there you've looked into it a lot it seems like you know a lot about it like is this really important and like really cool and crazy awesome or is it like maybe we'll wait and see maybe it's nothing because I, I feel like ha- having no personal experience with it yeah. from afar, I'm kind of my mind I'm finding is biased and thinking kind of like writing it off like this is probably just publicity. Maybe it'll turn into something. Maybe it won't. But I kind of get the vibe from you that like it's super real. Like is this super exciting it's, and super important? Yeah, or? it is critical. Like it's it's actually hard to overemphasize that. Like like you're super this bullish is on El Salvador. Basically, yeah, in some ways like El Salvador is Plymouth Plantation. If it wins, we get America. And if it loses, we don't. And you're and and you feel confident that this is like already happening. It's almost a foregone conclusion. Or like do you have uncertainty or skepticism or like uh, in El Salvador yeah. globally? Uh, specifically El Salvador. Okay. Like cuz yeah, I'm just curious. Like are you basically saying like no, this is happening and it's really crazy and cool, or maybe it will. Yeah, or, no, Salvador yeah. is awesome. It already happened. You know, it has a horrific reputation in the U.S. and globally because it was the most dangerous country in Latin America for ages and even in the world. Now it's currently ranked best on safety in Latin America in the last three months. They arrested most of the gang members. And unlike Mexico, like the gangs don't have ammo. So like it's actually pretty easy to beat them. So you think El Salvador has a really good legit chance of like oh, yeah, blowing has, up, becoming like a, a super It's going to blow up as a tourist destination center. even okay. regardless of, of crypto. It's so important for 
all of us that El Salvador wins because that's what creates all the copycats. If El Salvador wins and everyone's like, whoa, like if, uh, if all like Panama looks at El Salvador and they're like, whoa, they just like developed so quickly. Like last year they had 10% GDP growth in El Salvador. When people see that and like the tourism numbers coming out of El Salvador are ridiculous. It's like a 30% boost to tourism and there's not even that many tourists there. So it's basically like if that wins, then we get the crypto future we want. And so like people should really be taking the vacations to El Salvador because A, it's beautiful, safe and awesome. It has great roads and beaches and it's very convenient. There's tons of crypto meetups. There's no KYC. You can buy coffee using Lightning. You can buy pupusas. The food's awesome. And people it's, actually do that a lot. Like oh, buy yeah. stuff with Lightning. It's like, like yeah, literally, common. You yeah, literally by card. It. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all of all of Surf City like accepts lightning. And I mean, how many people are in Bitcoin beach, like roughly like actually yeah. doing this stuff? Um, so the meetups are actually really well attended. So like Bitcoin beach is like a little bit, basically, I think there's like a couple hundred expats living there now. Um, so they get together at sunset, the sun sets over the Pacific. It's a beautiful beach. Um, so it's just sort of like a Bitcoin retirement home almost. Um, okay. But there's a lot more activity happening in the city in those meetups where like, there's a lot of El Salvadorians using Bitcoin as part of their business. And so the El Salvadorians are very eager to work. I've been just like incredibly impressed with El Salvadorians as humans and as like as people to work with. Okay, um, so you're super bullish on El Salvador. You'd say yeah, that's it has one, great human capital. Sounds like you think that's one of the top spots in addition to Portugal. Yeah, it has a better time zone too. So like Portugal is five hours east, which isn't terrible, mm-hmm. but that's about as far east as you want to go. Like six hours is kind of the limit. You mean like for working with for Americans? working with yeah. Americans? Right. Um, I mean, it's nice when you're that direction. So I basically rule out Asia because you're, yeah. you'd have to wake up at like yeah. odd hours. Whereas like at least when I worked out of Ukraine. Um, at least I could get a good day in and then yeah I had to stay up a little bit later but it wasn't a big deal I like got off right. work at midnight so any other standout places when you do your like full multi-dimensional analysis yeah um, Ukraine was awesome I think it will be awesome again um, obviously that's on a hold period uh, Mayin is really awesome it has a lot of crypto activity it's sort of like a Mexico City where it's like the whole country isn't awesome but the uh, the city itself is awesome for living and for crypto. And yeah, I would just like, I would say, yeah, it's actually mostly happening in Latin America, um, Europe. You can do a lot without the place being perfect. Like my brother just yeah. lives out of Italy. And so like, cause he's not taxed by Italy's laws anyway. So I've been highlighting the places that have sort of like um, a lot of people going there. Because, like, a lot of these people probably want to, like, network. Right. Um, if you have a family and you're just trying to live from a beautiful place, like, Europe is all open to you right now. So you can just do Europe pretty easily. But you don't get any particular advantages, like, in terms of, you know. No, and you might have capital gains. Right, right. In that jurisdiction. Right. Um, now, yeah. what about for Americans who are citizens, live in America, kind of normie Americans, especially normies like me with families and, you know, whatever, trying to kind of build a family in America. Yeah. Are there Are there things that people should be doing that they don't know about, like, you know, like, should you go to El Salvador just to kind of like file your new business or something like that? And like, uh, yeah, I think setting or, up or shell what? companies out of El Salvador makes total sense. Yeah. Um, even setting up companies that aren't shell because like the labor costs are so ridiculously low there and the English levels are actually really high, like fluent. Like weirdly, a lot of El Salvadorians work in U- for U.S. companies and outsource jobs. Okay. So like English levels are higher there than anywhere else in Latin America. It's like bordering like Europe. Um, so like, yeah, you could just outsource a lot of things like a personal assistance, like 
you know, 500 a month there. So you just and, have someone do a lot of your ministry. And is the culture and economy enough, like developed enough that it's like easy and functional to do these things? Like, mm-hmm. so you could go. It's high-speed internet. It has a lot of co-working spaces. So if you go to El Salvador and you want to, you know, file for a business there and you want to build a little thing there, it's like things will actually move and it's it's yeah, not like there's a lot of a lot of countries like that I haven't I, I haven't traveled in South America myself actually at all so um totally ignorant but um you know I know enough about the world that knowing I, I do know that in a lot of countries things just often don't work very well and so that that's, that's in terms yeah, totally of bureaucracies right. and everything so it's, it sounds like El Salvador really is and from your perspective it's like really functional and working well yeah they set up a new track basically the new president who you know has made it the safest place in Latin America built American level highways like the highways are so good. It's insane. Uh, It's better than the Northeast for sure of the US Um, and then basically Yeah, they set up a track to like basically have a Streamlined process for setting up businesses that reports directly to the president's brother instead of through the normal bureaucracy Which has the exact issues that you're commenting on normal bureaucracies are terrible I mean they suck in the US too for you know for context. Yeah, terrible. It's not fun in the US either Um, But yeah, they've basically set up this like separate red carpet type experience to attract investment uh, where you get to interact with like intelligent people who are motivated for results versus it's very patchworky actually. Right. I guess patchwork. I'm just trying to gauge like is this really only for kind of like international financial whale types or no, is it you think I'm this even is encouraging, actually like this is relevant to people I think even it's like small, relevant bi- small to you. business people. Like, I think it's relevant a, yeah. to small business people who have token use cases for monetizing their networks to improve the network. Um, so yeah, my dad's been opening several businesses, so he's sort of pioneering the process of opening American businesses in El Salvador. Oh, really? Uh, currently has 10 slated, so like I'll be able to give you like the Ten. hard... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's like a lot more in the works. So like, wow. yeah, Americans want to locate to El Salvador. So like, you know, don't tell me what you think. Show me what you're doing. Like, yeah, we're opening businesses. How does in El your Salvador. dad ten, run ten companies? Or just he doesn't run. Oh, he he's doing it for others. Yeah, yeah so he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Gonna, oh right, of course. Um, um, he's okay. even helping like. Uh, well, I don't want to speak too much, but like, there's people in Austin who you know personally who are setting up in El Salvador. So I'm happy to connect okay. with them. Well, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. I feel like maybe my final question, and of course we can get on anything else you want to add to the the agenda. But my final question would be about your vision for the the phases. I, I, think, I think it'd be nice for you to kind of spell that out. You referred to it before, but yeah. what are the three phases in this uh, kind of generalization of, of the network age? Uh, just tell us what are the you know tasks that occur at those yeah. three, at those three phases and kind of paint that picture for us. Yeah, I think of what like phase one is like vacationing. I think of phase two is sort of like leasing. And I think of phase three is buying and phase four is like governing. Okay. Those are kind of like the way you can think about each of the phases. Um, and you, you and your mates are kind of at like two. We just, I guess. we just are entering two now. We like you're starting, to, you're starting to lease places. Yeah. And and you're and you're basically kind of building a portfolio of leases, like exactly. multiple places, and you can bounce around them as friends. And then like part of the membership is like you don't have to get stuck in one place. Like maybe you spend three months in one area, three months in another. Like right. So like ten people, nomad. ten people can share three lease, three leases in three different countries. Yep. And you just bounce around when you feel like it. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, ideally it'd be like. 20 countries down right. the road. Um, and is this I'm formalized thinking, at all? Are you a company? Is that a company doing it? Or what? what is the structure yeah, you're doing that um, with? Currently, it's been uh, bootstrapped. And like weirdly, like that's another tool of crypto is you can just throw money into a multi-sig. So like and is that, what, two, is that what this project is? like? A... That's our next step in this project. So okay. we basically did phase one. 
um, which is like me living abroad for two years, a bunch of other guys getting looped in, and we just pick up people like Talon offsites. The guys. And that's just totally informal, basically. It like, was like yeah. totally informal, no company, no like real structure. And then we're like, oh, okay, like there's something here. We've sort of like identified this sort of people market fit, I almost would say, right. um, where, yeah, there's like a ton of demand for help in this lifestyle. Um, and there's a ton of demand to have an actual network. So it's not just I live in San Salvador or Bitcoin Beach. It's like, oh, I can like network in Lisbon, El Salvador, and Mexico City, two, three very different yep. places. And so like, and Selena did this really well too. Uh, they actually have like a, they have a model where like you can rent out of any set of places. Okay. Um, so those are the four phases we did. I want to talk a little bit more about phase two is like, it's leasing the hub. So you actually have a hub like you have in Austin where people can go hang out and have consistency and hang out. And where also if you're thinking of coming to El Salvador and just checking out on vacation, you could be like, there will be people here. So the Aleph hub will be El Salvador? Yeah. That's like the main kind of HQ at the, the start. second. It's Mexico City and El Salvador almost in tandem. Mexico City a couple months later. And is uh, this – so are you going to have like a multi-sig that kind of owns the lease or how do you structure that? Yeah. I mean for this one, that's like the future state that yeah. I want to get to. Or okay. Like the current state is like I have to deal with the landlady. Right. So and just so do I it the normal to, way. So I do it the yeah, normal yeah. way but we handle like – we can do the multi-sig for like collecting rent. Okay. Uh, there's some about – even in crypto, of usefulness for basically off these connect these bridges back to the old world, mm. like that's what like someone who's doing OTC of a lot of crypto is doing for you. They're like giving you access to basically their fiat money, right? And so they're creating a bridge between fiat and um, crypto, right? And so some of what Aleph is doing is creating those bridges for you, so that for example, you could live your life just with crypto, and you don't have to like have bank accounts anymore. Um, right. You can pay in crypto, and we'll do the process of converting it. Because right. I think that's that's like what yeah future people really okay want. so so st- phase two is basically leasing like an HQ in the in the main place yep um, the hub if you will exactly and so then phase three tell phase me more three about is that. like it's almost more like what William Bitmap is doing here in Austin where it's like you know he he thought of his like he bought a bar and then he bought a restaurant and then he bought a hotel and so like he's sort of doing each of these and it's mm. kind of like why would you spend like, what's the real use case for spending? Um, like, why are we not just stacking sats? Like, why spend capital on physical? It's like, well, you get to control the experience. And so if you're trying to shape culture in the way you want it, you kind of have to invest in um, in creating the spaces aesthetically that bring out that, that in people. Right. Like, it's sort of like if you want... Uh, it's like what the Medici's did. They invested, you know, in Michelangelo and a lot of other artists. And, like, they're like, hey, we want a certain type of art. You actually have to invest in that. Right. And so it's like, yeah, we want to <clears throat> we own digital and rent physical to the extent possible. But there are certain things where you do need to start owning physical because it, um, it just allows you to create the exact culture you want instead of uh, having to kind of basically stitch a few different spaces together. Like... Right. You could, for example, partner with a WeWorking space. Like, there's one that's doing a Bitcoin space in El Salvador. But then you you're know, subject to all their, like, gay weird shit. Weird Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, like, honestly, like, actually, quite frankly, you know, like, now it's like, you're, are you doing Urbit? Is that, like, some scam? It's like, right, right. Uh, no. Like, so, that's a, honestly, like, it's a little bit of a tangent for like, this. Like, no, motherfuckers, we're going to buy you and you're done. <laughs> exactly. And, like, I don't know, like, weirdly, like, ETH and Bitcoin have this, like, builders mentality. They attract builders. Bitcoin is weirdly, like, the maximalists are basically, like, this landed aristocracy that just, like, wants to collect rent on having been early to Bitcoin. Like, they're not really building. Um, I think that's kind of fucked up. And I think, like, 
you really as a project should be structuring your incentives such that like you're actually rewarding people for building like new infrastructure on it and like you know ETH does a decent job of that I would say it at least has a full blown out economy with DeFi where you can like Uniswap figured out ways to earn ETH um, by building an awesome product I think Urbit would accelerate faster if it did a better job of you know rewarding address space to people who are doing good work like Urbit Live has done like insanely large amounts of work and I'm not sure if they've ever they like you know like they don't yeah. own much of the address space and so Urbit actually has this issue frankly it has sort of a Bitcoin type issue mm. um, where the address space is insanely concentrated there's so many apps we want built today um, it's just moving at a glacial pace in a lot of ways because I'd say it's it hasn't learned the benefit, it hasn't learned the lessons of ETH, where it's sort of like set it and forget it, like set the incentives properly, and then right. you get a Uniswap, you get DeFi, you get NFT markets, right. and it's it's doing kind of like honestly more of the communist type thing of like centrally managed. I feel development. like it's changing now though, like right now as we It's speak. moving, yeah, yeah, and I'm very bullish on Urbit, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> don't yeah, get know, me wrong. Yeah. Um, and it, it is changing as a culture, and I see it happening day by day, but I just, I kind of think a lot about why are we not getting that ETH type thing. No, I mean, honestly, like I say this on the podcast to people listening and watching, like letting them, like I try to, I scream, I scream from the rooftops now. Like yeah. there is capital, there's money, like there's a lot yeah, of money yeah. floating around. And if you're into Urban, if you fuck with it, like, and you want to build shit, just fucking send me an email. There's, there's yeah, money, yeah. There's, there's money, money for there's people mentors. Want, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like, and I think, at a certain, didn't you yeah. kind of like organically, you said you had like maybe like even put together like a little bit of like an investor club or almost like. Yeah, I have a little syndicate. Yeah, I have a little syndicate okay. on, on Urbit, and we just bought a bunch of Miladies, yeah, and um, some other things, you know, some Urbit adjacent things, you know. Yeah. So uh, that was mostly just for fun, but it's more like, um, you know, I, I think more about just engineers, but also creators, just people who are basically looking for something better and bigger from the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, this problem that you're talking about, about unlocking incentives and and making a lot of people feel like it's worth it for them to work on it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I totally understand what you're saying, and it's it's one thing for us to talk about this, you know, almost like as third-party bystanders. But yeah. on the other hand, like, there are people listening to this who we need to tell them, like, no, get involved. There's money. Like, we're, yeah, yeah. we're figuring it out. But, like, if you can add value, there's money slushing around. Just, to, you know, get in the mix. Put in the legwork of just trying to get the ball rolling. But if – and basically what I have found in Urbit world is if you have high agency – and you just like get after some things, you're gonna quickly find people with resources who wanna support you. And everyone that I've encountered in the Urbit world, like has a very positive sum attitude of just like, you know, um, wanting to make sure everything is fair and wanting to make sure that if you're creating value, you're gonna get some in return. Yeah. Like I've, I've never, you know, struggled to eventually find that, you know, cause as, as someone who's like, yeah. Trust, yeah. it's like very, doesn't ever have a culture of like short term screwing over someone. I think like I don't think the like the thing I critiqued there. I don't think it's really intentional. No, it, it's a common it's like, problem. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a common problem, and I I don't think it's intentional. It's just the way it has been a little bit. But you're totally right. You can bootstrap a lot of this. Yeah. Um, and like the interesting thing is like, I want to talk actually very slightly about this idea of internal economy because it was sort of clicking with a few people yesterday sure. at the meetup, and it's like really interesting in the context of this. Sure. Yeah. It's like. Basically, Urbit more or less has an internal economy and an internal culture, and like that's so incredibly valuable to Urbit as a project. Right, Milady. people do everything from within. You don't even need to get outsiders. It's like this thing where you can source almost everything you need from within the world. Yep. It, it's good and bad money, in a way. Money, yeah. entrepreneur. Actually, we kind of struggle a little on the entrepreneurs, actually. Yeah. So we have money and dev talent, 
we actually struggle a little in entrepreneurs. Like uh, we don't really have a great sort of brand marketing type person right. really spearheading yet. Um, of course, you're stepping in a big way on the podcasting side, really helping Urbit kind of get its voice. Um, but we still have core entrepreneurs uh, missing. So if you're like, again, honestly, yeah, again, talk to me. If you have any skills, dude, like we kind of know the gaps, dude, so like, talk to us. I sometimes tell people it's like almost every business that currently exists on the current internet, probably some version of it could be built from scratch yes. on the same business yes. model, but on Urbit. So it's like if you're an entrepreneur or a successful founder or whatever, just trying to get involved in the next biggest, most interesting thing, it's like whatever you've done successfully in the past, you could probably just do it on Urbit mm -hmm. and be sitting on like a, an, an insanely massive opportunity potentially. And it's like, that's what I'm, it's like a whole new world. And then world, Justin, right? so, me and a lot of the other guys can link you up to like which one you should build first. Should it be like Instagram, Facebook, you know, which of the things in Web2 should be built on Urbit first totally. is an interesting question. So, so yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you that it, it's we're still trying to, the, the Urbit ecosystem is still trying, trying to figure this out and it's not perfectly smooth yet. In an ideal world, it's just like, there's a million opportunities to immediately plug in, get paid mm -hmm. to do valuable work. It's all permissionless. It's all super uh, smooth and, and, and perfectly straightforward. It's not there yet, but it's definitely getting there. And there's, I think a ton of people who have the same diagnosis that you have and are now starting to like figure out ways to be more, more like fluid, more permissionless, more just like throwing yeah. resources at anyone who's doing something valuable. And it's like, yeah, I can complain like, oh, like a few of the apps I want built haven't been funded by, I don't know, the foundation or someone or Talon back in the day. But it's like, why don't I just create like a syndicate and invest in it? Like what's stopping me from doing right. that? So like, I actually kind of like, in some ways I kind of like the friction because it's just sort of like, it's really uh, agency. Like Urbit's a really high agency culture. Yeah. It's like, just do it. If yeah. you see a need, don't bitch about it. Just like do it. Like if you, right. if like no one's investing in your thing, just fund it. You were saying that it's, it has a very internal culture, meaning that a lot of what is done within the urban world is done by and with and for other people. Yeah, in the like urban the world. jobs aren't posted to Web two. They they right. come internally. It can be internal, and yeah. and that is very powerful because well, for the obvious reason that um, you have all of this potential kind of at your fingertips in this uh, cohesive culture. It can't culture. really be attacked. It can't be attacked, that's right. It's like illegible. Like yeah. it, 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 people um, don't even know what's going on. So in, in a way, like when Urbit really pops, it's gonna melt people's faces off because so much energy has been brewing and it's all invisible yeah. for the most part. It's, it's also, incredibly we invisible. don't really care about like a Guardian hit piece on us. Yeah. It doesn't really matter to us. It's not like, oh, like Phil had like, you know, Nil Run Marduk's had some hit piece. It's like no one's gonna care. They almost literally couldn't because it's so alien to them at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's I'm a sure good point. Actually, you know, they, they could definitely sense. Yeah, it's talking to a Guardian yeah. reporter actually at the bar. So clueless, completely. And clueless. she's just like, "Is it a call?" Right. They're so far. They don't even know what type of call. I mean, they they don't know to write an article on it. They obviously could, you know, send some people to check things out and do their research or whatever. Fair but women, they could get pretty deep too. But journalists don't do like investigative shit anymore. So it's like yeah. it's, it's actually too hard for any of them to even know what's going on enough to write some disingenuous. Yeah, they're even like at our parties sometimes, like <laughs> Urban Week and like yeah. the Mars if you wanted. Like they just don't know how. Anyway, I was just gonna also say that the the internal culture thing is good for some reasons, but it, it can be bad for others. Meaning. You know, it makes a lot of people sleep on how much is there, mm. right? So it's like a lot of people like who read my newsletter or listen to the podcast yeah. don't even know that 
there's so much going on that there are now like real startups being built on Urbit. Yep. That there's real investors waiting in the wings. There's like all this opportunity, yeah. all this potential. People unfortunately don't know about it half as much as they should. In part because it's such an internal culture, mm -hmm. and that's like one little role I'm trying to play with my podcast. Basically, it's like because yeah. I've, I've just been like to me, Urbit is one of the craziest things that I've I've encountered in the past few years. Like how much interesting, badass, just like really crazy, fascinating, cool shit is going on. And it's like I've never heard anyone else talk about any of the stuff like anywhere, <laughs> you know, except for within yeah. these circles, right? And so that's why I'm kind of like why it's becoming more a part of my podcast and the content and stuff is because it's like there's just so much there. It's such an arbitrage. It's like there's so much cool shit, so many badass people no one's ever heard of. It's like I could probably make my podcast increasingly just about this because you could, yeah. it's a massive arbitrage, really. And 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 I the reason I say this is not to talk about myself, but to kind of show that to other people. It's like it's you a know, massive space. It's a massive opportunity so and like that everyone is sleeping crypto on. Crypto yeah. as money is a huge space. Crypto as computing, sound computing is a massive opportunity. When you're talking about like rebuilding all the apps, it's like yes, exactly. They'll be built differently, right? Because they share the same social graphs. So we don't have to, you know, all this stupid logins right, across right. all. One thing I would mention, though, to that point of, like, internal and, like, the downsides of it is, like, actually, one big downside is, like, people think a little bit too much, like, I am an orbiter versus, like, I am part of the network age. I am becoming a leader in this new network age. And so they get a little bit too tribal in the bad way sometimes where they don't always mix perfectly with others. That's being solved. Like, Urbit Week was a huge step forward in that regard. Totally. I think Assembly is a pretty welcoming place. Um, but, you know, one thing I think a lot about is, like, Sound computing, not Urbit. Sound money, not Bitcoin. Uh, sound community, not just Urbit. Like, oh, yeah. we really need it to be, like... I know what you mean. You know, inclusive of a lot of, like, awesome artists, a lot of... Um, like, we want to... We hate... Most of people, like, a common theme in Urbit is, like, we don't like the aesthetics of the industrial age. We want, like, a new renaissance. And that only happens if we're inclusive of artists and creatives. And we don't want to just talk about just computing. Like, we really need to expand as, to, like... I see Urbit... Is kind of like a core nucleus, sort of a atomic group. There's this book like Cold Start that's really interesting mm. about how Tinder launched. But you like you get with like Urbit this awesome starting point. But if we think of it as an end in of itself, it's sort of weak. Like there's three types of of kind of like networks. There's ones that are based on events. So it's like the people who go mountain bike together and like you know the media. Yeah, you, know, you have like yeah. this whatever click in Austin to like go jog the river. That, those are like incredibly weak. Selena is actually based on that, so it's actually kind of a bad foundation for gating a network. Mm. The next is purpose driven, which is sort of like Bitcoin maximalism is very clearly purpose driven. Mm. Urbit as the next computing is very a purpose driven mission. They're very very strong. But they're not very inclusive, um, and I sometimes hate the word inclusive, but I mean <laughs> it in kind of its actual like positive sense yeah. of like there's lots of different things we want done, and we need to be inclusive of those skill sets. Um, and then if you think about values, which is more like uh, America as a value system. So we mm -hmm. talk a lot about like digital America, and sort of like digital America is kind of like what's evolving, and like what we liked about America was sort of uh, agency, frontier, um, yeah, freedom in a lot of ways. And so Hell we're yeah. kind of getting that now yeah. with crypto. So so I ranted a little bit about Urbit, but I want you to bring us home just to phase four. Phase four, it's it's a crazy one to like bridge, bring home. It's like you are almost more powerful than the state. Like you don't need to be recognized by the state. 
and this is the point at which you have like multiple leases, like you and your community. You own you, like the core own. assets in a lot of cool parts of the world. So like it's basically yeah. so you're not just leasing; you're like buying property. Yeah, you're now. Bu- you've already phase three. You've been buying. Oh, that's phase um, three. Okay, yeah, phase right. two leasing. Phase three buying. Phase four is like governing. So it's basically like, hey, uh, El Salvador, we need this like law. Uh, weirdly, like we are currently helping draft the Dow law for El Salvador, and so like t- they're not. You could be doing a phase four at the same time you're doing a phase one. Like, you could be vacationing in Portugal and you could be, like, writing DAO laws for... You could be helping to govern. Okay. But it's really, like, it's voice. I think you did a talk about exit and voice. And, like, currently we exited, but long-term we want to have voice. We want to have power over the communities to build the types of futures we want. And phase four is more about... Um, is more about kind of like actively building the future versus exiting to a place where you can start building it. Okay, so I think I maybe skipped three then now that I think about it. So after you, after you have these leases, right, you and your mates, your multi-sig, whatever, you, your little proto-DAO, you have some yeah. leases, you jump around you know, the world going to different places as a community doing some kind of purpose-driven thing. Um, at what stage do you decide to buy property? Like what, what, what makes you do that? What's the calculus for that? When is that the right... Yeah. Uh, choice. What? When does that happen? Um, even already, I'm planning this out. I've been looking at hotels um, to kind of do a Selena type space. In... But then you lose the flexibility and the resilience of being able to run with your crypto, right? So, yeah, like, how I, do you think that through? I do. I just look at it as like this trade off between like. Oh, you were saying, yeah, you need to buy if you want to really create a custom culture. Yeah, that, and also uh, like de- definitely that, but also like, look, um, you know, if I lease. For example, I do a long-term lease on this hotel. Then I get had complete control of events. It's different from running from renting a mansion where like there's, you know, an HOA and they kind of have some amount of control over yeah. me, and I can't just throw like a massive party. Right. Um, here I can. You can kind of more do like a Milady rave type thing. You can do like the Praxis type thing. You have the, you have like the per, you have control over basically the full event schedule. You can do any type of event you want, right. and so that's the upside. It's like yeah, there's a little bit of downside risk, but what's the actual downside risk like? Your, your capital is not going to, like, immediately disappear. Uh, like, it's not just, like, poof. Like, we've, like, expropriated all of your uh, your hotel, you know? Right. So one one advantage is you could just well, do a long-term. Well, that could happen, term. but whatever. It could. It's, like, a very low probability yeah. depending on where you pick. Right. That's part of why I wouldn't go to, like, certain African countries currently. Right. But, like, Latin America has some basic level of property rights. So it's more like, okay, the regime might change. We talked about this yesterday. Like, maybe the regime changes. Maybe El Salvador stops this like awesome ascent and start maybe it starts getting worse. So then your property value now it gets valued at different valuation. You lose like maybe let's say like twenty percent is kind of what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. That's like in the scenario where the regime changes, you can assign probabilities. I mean, I did a lot of stats. Like a lot yeah. of these things are just probabilities, and it's sure. like, yeah, someone could expropriate all your money, so probably don't set up in like Congo, um, right? Unless you bring your own private military. Yeah, in which, which case the upside <laughs> could be tremendous. Yeah, uh, you know, the new Rhodesia is a pet project of a lot of us, but um, <laughs> but for now, you know. Well, I mean, it, people will people will kind of, you know, look askance at that and sound, oh, that sounds sketchy, Justin's podcast, they're up to some weird shit. But when you consider the fact that, like, China's moving in like crazy, China's right? China's already moved it's in. Like, it's like, it, this is not like a, like, you know. Like, do you want this sort of, like, totalitarian, weird colonial thing, or do you want, like, tech guys that are living in your place and investing, growing local food, investing local businesses. Yeah, I think you could even make the argument that, like, you know, hardworking, honest, good, ethical American Christian people almost have an ethical obligation to 
you know, fight some role in the future of Africa to, to for the good of Africa. Yeah, right? Because I mean, if yeah. we do, if, if if Americans and Westerners don't have some kind of positive role in Africa, then China's going to own all of it. And I don't think that's going to be good for African people. <laughs> yeah, I think like I mean, the gospel, right? I'm a pretty Christian guy. Um, I would just say, like, the gospel is, like, you become a born-again Christian, but you're also supposed to spread it. You're supposed to evangelize the good news because it's, like, basically heaven's the best place. And, like, why wouldn't you want more people to go there? Yeah, we've gotten away from that. We've really gotten away from it. Um, You know, like, Ethiopia was Christianized very early, like, very, very early. It was almost like, I mean, it had the connections back to King Solomon. Um, And then, like, we sent a ton of, the Christian world sent a ton of missionaries to Christianize Africa. And I think, I think Christianity in its... That's like a totally separate conversation. I think it's a beautiful thing. I've had personal experiences where I've seen it sort of co-opted into negative, but I would say overall, yeah, it is a great value system. I think it's a beautiful thing to be proud of. And like weirdly, the Western world, I think has kind of lost its mojo because it's not proud of its roots. The Western world is a Christian world. We like renounced Christianity and we renounced our culture in the same process. In any event, this is like phase four stuff, right? Like phase four is is phase four. There's gonna be stuff like this. We're definitely phase three. Yeah. Phase four, like, honestly, you don't even need, you've like won so much if you do phase three well that like I think a lot of people will be so so happy with like a successful phase three that they might even forget there's a phase four. And right, so phase three being basically you and your community own a bunch of property uh, distributed around the world. That's very much the the Balji's mental model in, in mm-hmm. many ways, right? Um, but then what happens from there? Like after that's achieved is where things get really interesting and, and who knows what the future holds because yeah, you can exactly. ima- you can imagine situations where like, right. Uh, imagine a, a future where Ukbar and Urbit take over the world. Right. And so it's like, you could have, uh, you can imagine having a kind of, you know, a network state with, you know, a GDP of, you know, the size of the U S yep. GDP. Right. But it's all shrouded behind like zero knowledge stuff. And oh, it's yeah. like pseudonymous urban identities. That'll probably happen. Yeah. It's more a matter of like who than like if. Or yeah, when. exactly. I mean, uh, I think it will. Like that. This yeah. is the future I'm envisioning. You know, and it's like if you t- if you take seriously things like zero knowledge advancements and you know uh, strict pseudonymity and yeah. those types of things that you know Urbit Ukbar are already going in that direction. You you do have to imagine that at a certain level of development, it's like you have you know, uh, trillion dollar network state economies that current n- nation states can't even see into. Yeah, they basically. can't see into. And like the interesting thing is we can see into them. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we can see into their power. We know how they work. We know how to basically deal with each of them. And jump but around they have from no idea other, how our right? network yeah, works. Yeah, right. And that's yeah, exactly. like what you actually want. It's more than, I don't totally. want to be recognized. I want to recognized. I want to recognize their power and their structure. Right. I don't want them seeing my, I don't want to like right. make my power structure clear to like some random country that might be trying to screw over my network. Right. It's like you can imagine. So the United States gets, you know, smart about the network states that are getting, you know, built in their domain. And imagine like it's 2060, right? The U.S. government is trying to crack down on these massive network states. 2040. Yeah, uh, yeah 2040. <laughs> there you go. Uh, even sooner. And, you know, the United States government starts to pass a bill to like crack down on these network states. It's yeah. like while that bill is halfway through the Senate, you know, you and your mates have like already relocated the the shell companies. And, yeah. You know, it's like, you know this what I mean? This is Sovereign Individual like explicitly talked about the exact thing with cyber money. It was like literally by the time they've, they're done debating in their slow, slow way, like all of the funds have moved right. to a new right. domicile. Right. And like we've already seen this play out. This isn't even 2040. Like this already happened with Ukraine. 
this already happened with like a lot of the Argentinian wealth and like this is accelerating massively and like I think even in one year we're gonna see crazy things happen in the world because yeah. of <laughs> yeah because of these trends and also because like the industrial world Teal talked about this recently but the industrial world is basically we like we lived too far into the 20th century it lived an extra 20 years than it should have like we basically didn't change in YK2 in that period we like continued working out of these giant offices and not going remote and not doing business without borders um and so Teal was totally right about that but now we're in kind of a new age and like yeah I could basically talk about this for a few days straight um, yeah. so I'll kind of yeah leave totally. it to you how to finish we uh, covered a ton of ground that was perfect I think we Brought it home with phase four. Where can people find you if they want to connect and or yeah. learn more? Yeah, so uh, Nilrun Mardux, um, also philip.galbach at gmail.com, 1L. I'll put um, all this info in the show notes so yeah, you can so hit feel, up Phil. Yeah, feel free to like email me. Um, I'm mostly on Urbit, um, but I'm also, I have like Telegram, WhatsApp, and Signals, so I'm also happy to communicate over those. I'd say like getting involved, um, I would just say, well, for one, for more information, a little plug on uh, Tim Luck, the CEO of, Ukbar, my my uh, oldest brother, we're going to be doing a podcast focused just on Cyber Age. Oh, yeah, of course. I started um, listening to sorry, the, I, I listened to like the first so. two episodes. Oh, it's a separate one, not Web yeah, Zero. Yeah, so actually we're branding it from Web Zero. Web Zero will be like the tech part of it. That's but, what it's currently called. I yeah. listened to the first two episodes. It was great. Yeah, they're great. But you're changing the name or it's just Yeah, be we're changing thing. the name to Network Age oh, okay. and focusing it more on kind of what we just talked about nice. over the last like almost two hours um, because there's so much on culture, tech, totally. politics, law, to go into and it's just going to be yeah kind of fun discussions cool. like well, this if, if you like this podcast you'll probably like that podcast so go subscribe to that whether it's called web zero or network age depending on when this comes out yeah um, first uh, recording next week cool. Um, oh, cool and then i guess one thing i would say is like this is all seems maybe like futuristic right. and scary but like it's literally already happening today and if you just want to like see what's happening just like hit us up plan like a vacation just like i don't know stop in go like yeah, totally. go to mexico city <laughs> go to el salvador just like check it out they're awesome places you'll have fun hell yeah um yeah just like don't think about leaving your country necessarily just think about like living a more sort of vital life love it man this is super exciting you, you got me pumped i appreciate yeah. it phil yeah thanks, thanks man all right hit us up on urbit we're done thanks that's good Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.